Well, it's fascinating to watch the world respond to the tragic death of a celebrity. This past week, social media blew up in honor of Kobe Bryant, one of basketball's best players who died tragically with his daughter in a helicopter crash. And if you're not into the basketball world, and if somehow you miss that tragic death this week, if you think back a couple years ago, 1997, when Princess Diana died tragically in a car accident, it's estimated that that year there was about 5.8 billion people alive on planet Earth. It's also estimated that about 2.5 billion people tuned into her funeral. So almost half of the world's population tuned in to watch her funeral. How many people knew her? Definitely not 2.5 billion people, correct? There were 2,000 people at the ceremony who were invited into that actual uh, uh, funeral celebration. But 2.5 billion people watched it on television. And why? Why do these things strike us so much? Why do we so collectively mourn the passing of a celebrity, even if you didn't particularly care for that celebrity? You pay attention. You notice. As I watched the amazing response to Kobe's death this past week, it hit me that mankind is hardwired for imitation. We're hardwired for both imitation and worship. And, and we think, if we think about this, it doesn't matter who you are or what you like to do. You probably grew up aspiring to be like somebody. Many guys my age who played basketball, even some who didn't play basketball, they would crumple up. I, I did this all the same. I played basketball for a couple of years. I would crumple up wads of, of paper and shoot it in a trash can and yell, Kobe. Imitation, right? He had this incredible jump shot that everybody wanted to imitate. If you're not a basketball player, you probably grew up watching a musician, wanting to imitate that musician. Maybe you started wearing clothes like that musician. Maybe you started playing instruments like that musician. You started to try and make your voice do what that vocalist does. If you're an artist, you probably had artists that you watch and you aspired to be like and you wanted to be like them. If you're a teacher, you probably had favorite teachers in your upbringing. And now as a teacher, you try and imitate them or you try and remember some of the things that they did. Young preachers, they're the worst. They, they, they listen to the preachers that they aspire to be like, and their first hundred sermons are almost identical to those preachers. And it's like, stop preaching like so-and-so. Find your own voice. This is a, a, a human nature thing, right? We're hardwired to imitate people. We have role models that we look up to, and, and there's worthy role models. There's people worthy of imitation in our life. But there's only one worthy of both imitation and worship. See, we tend to start imitating people and look up to people, but then we can also put people on a pedestal and start to worship them. And we see this when, when pastors fall, people are crushed because not only did they imitate their pastor's faith, but they started to worship that pastor or an athlete or a musician or whoever it may be. If you imitate somebody, and, and there's some worthy qualities in people to imitate, but if you put them on too high of a pedestal and you start to worship them, you end up crushed when they pass away or when you realize they're not the person that you thought they were. And so this morning, as we look at the text in Matthew 13, this isn't working, Jeff. Could you uh, go to the next slide for me? As we look at the text in Matthew chapter 13, this Matthew chapter 14 this morning, we're going to see that Jesus is worthy of both our imitation and worship. As we walk through this text, we're going to see examples of Jesus's imitatable character. He had a character. He did life in such a way that we as human beings ought to imitate. Jesus is the Son of God 
who came in human flesh and walked among us. What we see throughout the book of Matthew is that Jesus is showing us a better way to do life. He is showing us what true humanity looks like. And so we see in our text this morning some imitatable character qualities of Jesus. And then we also see this worshipful nature of Jesus, why he's the type of man that we can imitate, and we can follow that imitation so far that, in fact, we bow our knee to him and worship him. So that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. I've asked Sherry to come back and read the text for us. It's Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 36. And so if you have a pew Bible, open up to page 820. And I'd ask that you stand as Sherry reads the passage. Matthew 14, starting with verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Jesus and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Lord, we thank you for this word. I ask that you would use it to speak to us this morning, Lord, to show us how Jesus is, in fact, worthy of both our imitation and our worship. I pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to imitate your Son more and more. 
and move us in your Holy Spirit to bow the knee and worship to him more and more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, again, the, the big idea that I kind of want to pull out of this text this morning is that Jesus is worthy of both our imitation and our worship. There's incredible examples of this, of both of these in this text. There's two specific examples of Jesus' imitation that I want us to look at. And the first one, the first imitatable character of Jesus that I see in this text is that Jesus doesn't cozy up to human vulnerability. He chases spiritual vitality. Jesus doesn't cozy up to human vulnerability. He chases spiritual vitality. And to understand this, we have to be reminded of the context of where we are in this text. Last week, Pastor Mark preached on the end of Matthew chapter 14 and the beginning of Matthew chapter, the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. And he reminded us that, as the text does, that Jesus was rejected by his hometown. So the end of Matthew chapter 13 has Jesus back in Nazareth, his hometown, and all of the people of that town rejecting him. How does it feel to be rejected? Remember, Jesus is the son of God, yes, but he's also fully human. He's fully God, fully human. The hypostatic union, this this weird nature that we can't quite understand, this mysterious nature of Jesus. One of the reasons why we worship him, we'll talk about that as we go, but keep in mind, he's 100% human. As a human, how does it feel to be rejected by other humans? And not just other humans, not like rejected by your enemies where you can say, I knew that they were going to reject me, but rejected by your friends, rejected by your family, rejected by those in your hometown. How many of you grew up in a small town? Put your hand up nice and high. I did. Okay. And regardless of where you grew up, you don't want to be rejected by those who know you. But in a small town, there's this unique thing where kind of everybody knows you and and you want to either prove them wrong about their wrong assumptions about you you or you want to be accepted by them. Jesus is from a small town. Nazareth is a small town and he's back there and he he's rejected. So he's he's vulnerable. A hundred percent man, mankind doesn't love the feeling of rejection. Jesus has this human vulnerability. He also then, in Matthew chapter 14, the first part of it that Mark preached last week, he hears about the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is one of Jesus' closest friends. He's also a cousin. So here's the vulnerability of Jesus. He's in, in this text that we're looking at today, verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus heard this, heard what? When he heard about his friend and cousin dying, He's still wounded from the rejection of his hometown. And on top of that wound, on top of that rejection, he learns that one of his best friends, closest friends, and his cousin has died. He has been killed by an evil ruler. Herod Antipas has beheaded Jesus' friend and cousin. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. How vulnerable would you be Those you're closest to have rejected you, and another person that you're closest to has just been murdered. Jesus is a man, and he is vulnerable, just like you and I, church. Jesus understands what it's like to experience loss, to experience rejection. We're in this interesting phenomenon right now in America where we like to embrace vulnerability, And the reality is we're all vulnerable, right? To be human is to be vulnerable. We have weaknesses. 
And so admitting your vulnerability, bringing your vulnerability into light is a good thing. We ought to be vulnerable with one another. But we shouldn't stay in our vulnerability. We shouldn't cozy up to our vulnerability. To be vulnerable means that you can be attacked. It means that you can be led astray. It means that you can be deceived. It means that you can be put off course. And so to be human is to be vulnerable. We ought to admit that Jesus, as a human, he had some vulnerabilities. He was weak. We see earlier in Matthew chapter 4 that he's tempted by Satan. Jesus, fully man, has all of this human vulnerability, but unlike us, he doesn't cozy up to it. He doesn't find pride in being a broken, vulnerable individual. In fact, he's not broken. He's broken by our sin, but he's not broken in and of his own nature. He never sinned. He was sinned against, so there's probably some brokenness there, and he's probably experiencing some brokenheartedness from being rejected by his family in his hometown and from losing a friend. He's vulnerable. Just like Jesus, we're vulnerable. We ought to admit that. But unlike Jesus, this is where he's so worthy of our imitation. He doesn't cozy up to his vulnerability. He doesn't make friends with it. He doesn't wear his vulnerability, his brokenness as a badge of honor. Don't we sometimes do that? In fact, I was watching a comedian recently who was talking about their brokenness, and then she laughed it off, and she said, brokenness is the brand. I can get away with sharing all of my junk with you now because it's the brand. That's part of our culture right now. It's to actually celebrate how broken we are. But Jesus, he doesn't do that. Look at what he does in his vulnerable state. Verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. What is Jesus doing? He's, he's trading vulnerability for spiritual vitality. I'm convinced Jesus is he's, he's feeling broken. He's feeling vulnerable. Jesus experienced temptations the same way that you and I experience temptations. Scripture tells us that, that he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. When is temptation the strongest? When you're vulnerable, when you're weak, when you're broken, when you're rejected, when you're tired, when you're sad. That's where Jesus is. He's tired. He's sad. He's vulnerable. And in this state, he draws away from the busyness of life to receive spiritual vitality. We'll see in a minute here that he's interrupted, but notice that in verse 13, that in this state, in this broken, sad, vulnerable state, Jesus makes a point to seek out spiritual vitality. He draws away from the people. He seeks a desolate place, it says in verse 13, to be by himself. Now, this wasn't just to binge watch Netflix or to scroll Instagram or to whatever it is that sometimes we do to try and numb ourselves. Look at verse 23. It says, and after he dismissed the crowd, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. So we'll get back there. So in verse 13, Jesus pulls away. His intention is to, to move on from his human vulnerability into spiritual vitality. He wants to connect with the Father. He wants to go to a quiet place to pray, to commune with God. He wants to be filled up after being drained. Isn't this guy so worthy of our imitation? I mean, you live your life with, in vulnerability, with brokenness and and. How often do we try and numb our pain? Whether it's drinking, whether it's drugs, whether it's sex, whether it's binge-watching, whether it's 
binge listening to the radio. I don't know, does anyone do that? Talk radio? Some of you might. Whatever it is, we, we, we in our flesh have these ways that we try to deal with our human vulnerabilities which aren't godly and aren't soul-filling. And Jesus here is showing us a way. When you are vulnerable, get away and seek vitality. Vitality through your Father. Vitality through the Lord. Spend time with Him. Get by yourself and pray. But back to verse 13, we notice, so this is his intention. Jesus knows if he's going to continue to honor God and live in the power of the Holy Spirit and be the perfect man without sin, he can't live his life by cozying up to his vulnerability. He has to replace his vulnerability with spiritual vitality. So in this, in, with this intention, he seeks a place to pray. Second half of verse 13, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. How many of us would be so annoyed with the crowds? I've been rejected. My best friend, my cousin, has just been killed. And all of you needy people are following me? Leave me alone. Get away from me. I need some alone time. Verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Oh, I would be so annoyed right now. Just so you know, if you're following me in this state, I'm like, get away from me. I want to go and be alone. How many of you would have the same feeling in this state? Like, this isn't a crowd of people wanting to care for you. This isn't your church chasing after you saying, Jesus, we know that you've just been rejected. We know that you've just lost John the Baptist, a friend and a cousin. We want to care for you. We want to pray for you. We want to minister to you. We want to make a meal for you. No, this is a crowd following him saying, Jesus, we need things from you. He's vulnerable. He feels like he has nothing to offer. That's why he wants to get away, to be with the Father, to get filled up. But look at, again, how Jesus is worthy of our imitation. He, unlike us, he trades an opportunity for isolation, for the chance to show compassion. So he's seeking isolation. He, he's seeking a chance to be alone with the Father. But look at verse 14. When, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Church, Jesus is so much better than me and you and whoever else you seek to imitate and worship. I mean, as we read through the Gospels, one of the things that we see is Jesus is an incredible human being. He's showing us how to live life as humans. He's saying, if you want to be a good person, follow Jesus. Put others before yourself. Die to self. Don't seek out isolation when there's an opportunity to show compassion, he continues to pour himself out for the good of others. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a time and a place to seek isolation. Again, back to verse 23, we'll come to it in a little bit. He does find isolation. He does find a chance to pray. And remember, he, he prioritizes this in verse 13. So he's vulnerable and he's prioritizing finding spiritual vitality. But in the moment, he still doesn't cast people aside. He has this ability to kind of sense what the needs are in the moment and when he actually has to break away. Sometimes I think in our flesh we respond to people out of our vulnerability, out of our frustration, when really there's a, a need around us. In our flesh we reject that need or we ignore that need because we're thinking about ourselves. We're putting self before others. And Jesus here is putting, refilling himself, seeking spiritual vitality with God before others. But he knows, I'm, I'm going to pause here. This takes an incredible 
connection with the Lord and the Holy Spirit to say, should I give in to this need? Should I meet this need for others? Should I show compassion on the needs around me? Or should I pull away to be with the Lord? Oh, church, this is so hard, is it not? God's here to help us. He's empowered us with his Holy Spirit to imitate Jesus and to know when, when do we pull away? When do we seek isolation? When do we find a desolate place? When do we go ahead and have silence and solitude with the Lord so that we can be recharged, so that we can pour back out? But also, just keep in mind this imitatable character of Jesus. He had compassion, verse 14, on them, and he healed their sick. The reason he could do that is because he continually was filling himself up with spiritual vitality from the Father. He had a brief moment by himself, right? Just enough, I think, to, to have compassion to pour out for this next scene, and then he pulls away again to be refilled again. Verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples came to him. This is a desolate place. So he had found the desolate place alone, and the crowds followed him, and they wrecked it. It's no longer a quiet place, but it's still a desolate place. And they say, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. An incredible out. Right? Here's the opportunity for Jesus and the disciples to finally get the isolation, to get the solitude that they needed. We need solitude. We need a break. But Jesus, what does he say? So the, the disciples, here's the perfect opportunity. It's night. There's no food. Here's the crowd. We know you wanted some alone time. This is the chance. Send the crowd away. And Jesus says, they need not go away. This is why he's better than us, church. Most of us would say, perfect opportunity, send them away. We don't have food to feed them? Great. Go home, find your own food. And he says, you need not, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. This incredible character of Jesus. I, I, I want some alone time. I want some peace and quiet with the Father, but there's needy people in front of me, and I'm not going to send them away even when I have the opportunity to. Instead, I'm going to use this chance as an opportunity to show compassion on the crowds and also to my disciples to show them what it looks like to put others first, to die to self so that others might live. Two incredible examples of Jesus' imitatable character. But he's not just a man worthy of our imitation. He is. He lives this incredible life that if you know somebody who's growing in Christ-likeness, you want to be around that person. And that's one of the things that we see in the Gospels. That Jesus was this type of man who people wanted to be around. As we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are transformed and become more like him, we become a type of person who others want to be around because hopefully we're growing in our imitation of Jesus, the perfect man, the man who lived the life that we should but are incapable of. We move on from imitation to worship. And so we also see in this text here that he's worthy of our worship. We see this in this next section here where he in this section where he feeds the 5,000. So he shows us this, this imitatable character to pursue the Father first so that he has compassion to pour out on others, but then also knowing when to step aside from isolation and when to pour out for the sake of others. And then he shows us this, this character, this nature that is worthy of our worship. I mean, he just does this miracle. He multiplies five loaves and two fish. I, I don't know. I mean, you could take this part in two ways. You could say, well, 
this is something that we should imitate. We should have faith. We should pray that God would multiply, that he would do miracles in and through us, right? And, and, and we could do that. We, we could say that this is something that is here for us to imitate, that we should pray in faith that God would multiply. I mean, how many of you have been at a church potluck and the food's run out and you make this joke, right? Well, Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish. Some of you, you've been there, right? You've been on a youth group trip and the youth pastor didn't bring enough food and everyone's like, hey, Jesus multiplied food and in reality, it was the stupid planning of the youth pastor. <laughs> I don't know any youth pastors who have ever done that. But I think really what we're seeing here is this divine character, this divine nature, that he has ability to multiply fish and loaves. I can't do that. You can't do that. Through God's power through you in a prayer of faith, maybe. But ultimately what we're seeing here is that God has the divine, that Jesus has the divine power of God and he's able to meet the needs of those who are hungry around him. And, and it's an interesting story here. I think there's some more things at play. You'll see as Jesus prays for it, it's kind of this, I think he's pointing, and pointing to the Last Supper when he multiplies the bread or he breaks the bread and shares it with them. He holds it up here and he breaks it and it's multiplied and everybody in the crowd has food to eat. And then when they collect it, there's 12 baskets of bread left over. I think that has some imagery to remind them of the 12, tri 12 tribes of Israel and now the 12 disciples we're kind of functioning as this, this new Israel that Gentiles are now going to be grafted into this great family. Jesus is showing us that he's worthy of our worship because he can meet your hungry soul and your hungry body. It says that they ate until they were satisfied. And this is the business that Jesus is in, multiplying our little offerings. I mean, I love the disciples. They're like, they're just so human. And they see this opportunity, this out, and so they tell Jesus to send them away. He says, no, let's show compassion. I wanna, I'm going to do something supernatural here so that you can all see that I'm worthy of your worship. And I love verse 17. They said to him, we have only five loaves here to fish. That's our efforts, right? I mean, there's upward of, so it, it says that they fed 5,000 men. In addition, verse 21, women and children. So who knows, 10,000, 15,000 people are fed by five loaves of bread and two fish. Our offerings to God are like the equivalent of that. Could five loaves of bread and two fish feed a crowd of Ten to 15,000 people. Of course not. And is, isn't this good news for us that Jesus can take our, our measly little offerings and multiply it to the masses? Like when you sign up to teach in Kids Park and you're like, I don't know how to teach. That Jesus can take your stumbling through the curriculum and multiply that into making disciples of children for the next generation? That when I stand up to preach, I feel like I'm just some foolish guy with some weird thoughts. And God, I don't have anything to offer. He's like, that's fine. Bring your little offering and I can multiply it to the church family. When the musicians stand up here, I, man, if you knew the insecurities in the musicians and me when we stood up before you, you would never let us stand up before you. 
because we're bringing a small, measly offering. When you throw your $20 or your $2 or your $200 into the offering plate or give online, is that going to change the world? And we're looking at doing a building campaign, and that costs a lot of money, and maybe you made a pledge of like 10 bucks a month for the next three years, and you're like, great, that's going to afford the new toilet paper. <laughs> but, but what we see is that Jesus takes our small offerings and he multiplies them to meet the needs of his people. Amen, church? So as you're doing life with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with your church family, and you feel like you have so little to offer, I have so little time, I'm so busy, what, what can I really offer my neighbor? Well, offer the little bit that you have and watch what Jesus can do. He's a miraculous God, worthy of our worship. He's proven that he can multiply our small little offerings to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And so bring to him your little offerings and watch what he does. Another example of his worship-worthy character here is that he saves those drowning in doubt when they reach out in desperation. This is what happens next. So he's fed the 5,000. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to another side while he dismissed the crowds. Okay, so again, he, he's not always with the crowds. There is a time and a place to say, no, go home. We need some separation. I need to go be alone. He puts the disciples in a boat. He sends the disciples on their way across the sea in verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Again, he's seeking spiritual vitality. He's, he's getting refilled. It says, when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So the disciples are on a boat. Jesus is up on the mountain. They're in the middle of a storm. And in the fourth watch of the night, they they broke the, the night into four different watches of three hours from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So this is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. that Jesus comes to the disciples in the sea, in their storm. He had been watching them struggle for a while. Jesus left the disciples in the boat, in the storm, for hours as he prayed with the Father, as he communed with the Father. As he got refilled spiritually, as he sought spiritual vitality, the disciples are out on the sea struggling, probably fearing for their life. It says, verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, again, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. As he began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. See, Jesus saves those who are drowning in doubt and fear when they reach out in desperation. It's amazing here that Jesus 
I mean, he still kind of confronts Peter. He's trying to help Peter grow up. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus had already saved them from a storm on a sea. So I have to think Jesus is like, Peter, are you kidding me? I've already saved you from a, from a storm on a sea. I'm not going to let you die. I love you. You're my son. I've come to redeem you. You'll die later on as a martyr following me, but now's not your time. I've got your back. I'm with you. I've proven to you that I have control over the wind and the seas in Matthew chapter 8. And it's interesting, in Matthew chapter 8, when he does this, they say, who is this that he has such power over the winds and the seas? So they're, they're getting to know Jesus more earlier in the story. And he does this incredible miracle of calming the storm. And they say, who is this man that he has such authority? Here in Matthew chapter 14, a little later on, they've seen some more of Jesus. They've gone from imitation to worship, and they see now that he's the Son of God. He calmed another storm. He proved faithful again. He met me in my desperation again. He reached out and saved me when I called out to him again. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is God's sent one. A couple key things to notice from this story, church, is that Jesus sees the storm. You may feel like life is out of control right now, and it is. It's out of your control. But Jesus sees the storm. He knows what you're going through. He knows the tumultuous, 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 that's a hard word to say, tumultuous waters. He sees it. And he is strategically with you in that storm. He saw what the disciples were going through. He was still up on the mountain. He didn't rush to their aid. But also, he didn't let them die and drown. He came. He came at just the right time. He came at just the right time so that they struggled, they wrestled through this, and then when they, in desperation, reached out to him, he saved them. And in this process, they saw that he is the Son of God. And so, church, know that Jesus sees whatever you are in right now, whatever you're going through, that he is present with you in that, and that he's always willing to save you if you reach out in desperation. I love Peter's, like, Peter is just this incredible character because he shows this bold faith and then instantly he's doubting, right? He's like, jump out of the boat and walk on the water? Who, who does that? Oh, Peter. Because he believes. He hears the voice of Jesus. I know my good shepherd. I know his voice. I recognize that voice, Jesus. I'm going to jump out and walk on the water. And he does it for a brief moment of time and then he notices the chaos around him. It says he notices the wind and the waves around him. He takes his eyes off of Jesus. He sees the distraction. He starts to worry. He starts to have fear and he starts to sink. But as he's sinking, what does he do? He doesn't, he doesn't try and get out of the situation himself, he in desperation, complete desperation, my only hope, my only option is to call out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus reached out his hand, took hold of him, and saved him. And he doesn't say, oh, there, there, Peter, good try. He says, oh, you have little faith, trust me. I've got this. Why did you doubt? And in that, they worshiped. The word for worship here, it means to fall down, to kiss the feet of, to bow down on knee or to fall prostrate before. They humble themselves before King Jesus. They fall down before him saying, you just stilled the wind and the waves again. You've shown us what it's like to, to be a person who we ought to imitate. We want to live the life that you live, but also you have this ability 
to control the wind and the waves. You have this ability to multiply our small little offerings. You are the son of God who ought to be worshiped. For you will never leave us nor forsake us. And then the last thing, the last clue about worshiping here, it's not in this text, it's just in the whole sweeping scope of scripture. And we talk about this often here at Park Community Church, is that Jesus lived the life that we can't. He died the death that we deserve. And he offers us new life. Right? He lived the life that we can't. One of the reasons why we imitate Jesus is because he lived an incredible life that we ought to live. He was just a good person. Jesus loved people. He humbled himself. He served people. He's worthy of our imitation. If you want to live like somebody, he should be your ultimate role model, the one that you want to imitate. Read the Gospels, see how he did life, and try and imitate that. But he's also worthy of our worship because he lived the life that we can't. I mean, oftentimes we, we start to worship people that we imitate, role models that we imitate, because they're like, I because we're like, I could never make that jump shot. And there's kind of this, this hardwiring in our soul where we want to worship things that are greater than us, that are better than us, and Jesus is the ultimate one. He's living his life. He's saying, look at how I live life. I came to redeem life and to restore it and to live the life that you can't. This is what mankind was created to do and to be like. But you're fallen, you're broken, and so keep your eyes on me and learn to imitate me and ultimately bow your knee and worship me because I lived the life that you can't. I died the death that you deserve in your place, on your behalf. I overcame sin and death in the grave, and now I've given you new life. So we, church, like the disciples here in verse 33, we ought to bow down and worship him three questions as we close this morning. So if, if you're a Christian, consider this, ask these questions of yourself in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, I ask you to just consider the Gospels and look at the life of Jesus and, and honestly ask yourself, is this man worthy of following? Is he worthy of imitating? And then consider for yourself if his character, his nature that's worthy of imitating also comes with this characteristics, characteristic that's worthy of worship. Is he really God? Did he really give his life for others? Did he really overcome sin and death in the grave? Easter's a real thing that people celebrate around the world. Why? Is this just a myth that this incredible man who really lived, historical figure, that people around the world celebrate him overcoming death? Maybe he's worthy of my worship. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, wrestle with those questions. If you are a Christian, ask these questions. In the power of the Holy Spirit, will you imitate Jesus by repenting from your personal vulnerability and receiving his spiritual vitality? To repent means to turn from. Remember, Jesus came on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, we are vulnerable. We don't have to hide that. We don't have to cover that up. We should actually admit that, confess that to one another, share your vulnerabilities with one another. That is a part of repenting. It's acknowledging, this, this is who I am. This is how I think. This is where I'm weak. This is where I'm vulnerable. And I want to repent of that. I want to turn from my weakness and turn to God's strength. Repentance is to turn. It's to turn from what is wrong and turn to what is right. So turn from your human vulnerability and bring that to God and turn to his spiritual strength. Will you do that in the power of the Holy Spirit this week? Secondly, 
Will you imitate Jesus by trading opportunities for isolation for the chance to show compassion? And let the Holy Spirit empower you. We have him living in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you. So will you tap into that power? Will you surrender yourself to the Lord? Will you be filled with his spirit? And will you say, rather than chasing my own isolation, I'm going to show compassion. And the Holy Spirit will help you figure out when you ought to isolate, when you ought to seek solitude, when you need to put that aside and and run to people. And we're going to fail time and time again, which is why Jesus is worthy of our worship, because when we fail, he doesn't. Where we come up short, he doesn't. Last question to consider this morning. Will you worship and proclaim Jesus as the Son of God? That's what the disciples do in in all of these settings as they see Jesus laying down himself, as they see Jesus turning from human vulnerability to spiritual vitality, as they see him trading an opportunity for isolation to show compassion, as they see him multiplying their measly offerings of the five loaves and the two fish, as they see him calming the storm, all of this results in them saying, you are the son of God. I will give my life to you. I will worship you. I will follow you because you are stronger. You are more powerful. You are better. You are, you are the man who lived life in the ultimate way. And I want to live life like that. You are the son of God who gave his life in my place on my behalf. And I want to worship you. And so church, will you bow your knee to King Jesus this morning, to friend Jesus, to servant Jesus this morning and follow him? We have an opportunity to do that this morning through communion. We take communion every week at Park Community Church to remind ourselves that Jesus is the all-sufficient sacrifice, the man who lived the perfect life, the life that we can never live, the one who died the sacrificial death in our place. That's what the elements represent. The bread represents his body broken for us, also multiplied for us. Think about that this morning as you connect to this story. Jesus multiplies the loaves. Jesus multiplies his forgiveness into any who would receive him. And then the cup represents his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we're going to go into a time of response. At Park Community Church, we don't respond to our ability to muster it up and to to live life like Jesus and to imitate him better. Although we ought to strive for that. No, we respond to the fact that he lived the life that we can't, he died the death that we deserve, and he overcomes sin and death in the grave, empowering us for new life. And so anytime you feel led and ready, come to the stations. There's two here in the front, one in the back, as a response to who Jesus is and what he's done. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you live this incredible life worthy of our imitation and also our worship. Lord, I pray that as we consider you this morning, that we would be like the disciples who, as they saw your divine attributes and also your human characteristics, they they bowed their knee and worshiped, professing and proclaiming that truly you are the Son of God. So, Son of God, I pray that you would meet us here this morning, Jesus, that you would make yourself real to us, that we would worship you with conviction, that we would receive your vitality in place of our personal vulnerability, that we would, in the power of your Holy Spirit, trade our opportunities to isolate for opportunities to show compassion. 
and again, ultimately, that we would bend our knee and worship to you, Jesus. Amen.